0: The resurrection empowers Peter and Paul, as well as all believers after them, to understand that all imprisonment and sacred violence is violence done to Christ. Humankind is never the victim of God. God is always the victim of humankind.
1: Hello, my name is Ryan Hamill, and I am one of the hosts of New Humanists, the podcast of the Ancient Language Institute. I'm here with Jonathan Roberts, my co host and co founder of the Ancient Language Institute. We're on a quest to discover what a renewed humanism looks like for the modern world. And today, very excited to be joined by Dr. Patrick Downey, professor of philosophy and chair of the philosophy department at St. Mary's College of California. He's the author of two books, Serious Comedy, The Philosophical and Theological Significance of Tragic and Comic Writing in the Western Tradition, which was published by Lexington Books, and Desperately Wicked, Philosophy, Christianity, and the Human Heart, published by Interversity Press Academic. I hear tell there's maybe a third book in utero, but if, if we're lucky, we will get to see in not too, too long. <laughs> I recently also took a class with Patrick uh, via the Albertus Magnus Institute on Girard and Shakespeare. And so some of our regular listeners may have heard some of the fruits of that class when Jonathan and I were talking with Catherine Bradshaw and we brought in a little bit of Girard. But above all, at least as far as I'm concerned, Patrick is a dear friend. And I would say even before I took this class with him, he was... Uh, a very important teacher of mine um always informally and he really has impacted me really profoundly both in terms of not just on things gerardian but uh just the life of the mind and so absolutely honored and thrilled to have him joining us patrick thanks for thanks for coming on
0: <laughs> my pleasure thanks for
1: those gracious words oh yeah well it's fully merited and um uh, you do much more even than that. Well, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on to talk about, talk about Gerard and talk about this book is in part because, as I said, we've brought in a little bit of Gerard on this podcast before, but he can be a bit obscure, kind of hard to get a grip on what he's talking about if you haven't, if you haven't read him. Um, there's a lot of kind of technical vocabulary he uses. And this is one of my favorite books of his in terms of giving a sweeping overview of his thought, How I See Satan Fall Like Lightning. It's one of the books we read in the class. So we can kind of see this hour, hour and a half as a bit of a primer on Girard. I want to kind of open it, taking a guess on one easy way to access Girard based on what our listeners, their interests, what they may have read, um, something that I find helpful is Girard starts from the very similar place as the Inklings. I imagine many of our readers are familiar with Tolkien and Lewis. In noticing similarities between pagan mythology and Christianity, uh, dying and rising God, uh, things like this, And Girard ends in a very similar place, that these parallels between myth and the Bible are actually evidence of the veracity of Christianity. Um, So you can kind of situate him in your mind. He's engaged in a similar conversation, but with the exception that he takes a very different course in getting there. The Inklings, in their assessment of mythology, contend against the notion that myth means lie. The commonplace meaning of myth is a lie. And they say, no, 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 that's not what's going on with the myths. Whereas Girard doubles down. He says, yes, the myths are definitely lies. So he they start in the same place, end in the same place, and get there by totally different routes. So Yeah, I wanted to just take some time to talk about classical literature and myth, and maybe we can bring in a little Shakespeare and philosophy just to kind of open Girard up. So I don't know if there's anything there in my kind of opening exposition you want to discuss or take issue with, maybe. I
2: have a quick question about what you just said uh, with regards to the Inklings approach to myth versus Gerard's approach to myth is there is there a potential equivocation there maybe not maybe they're using you know the term in the exact same way but just curious to see if there's any uh, potential reconciliation between the two
0: yeah well the uh, the line that comes to mind is the i think Lewis says that the myths are lies breathed through silver and so that's kind of the the question is, is the nature of the silver, that their agreement, there's a lie going on, but is it a mild white lie? And then you're decorating it with silver, or is it a pernicious demonic lie? Mm -hmm. So that's it. So it's kind of the gravity of the lie. So compare um, the idea that the ancient gods are just kind of preparation for the true God. And so they sound like little mini John the Baptist or something of that sort. But then you go to, say, Augustine's confessions, and he says, "Oh, the, all, the, all the gods that the Romans are worshiping are demons." So they don't quite sound like John the Baptist for the gospel. They sound like uh, direct enemies of the gospel, that you have to choose between the two, and they're trying to prevent you from choosing, you know, the city of God in Augustine's terms. So that, I think those are the two ways of looking at it. It's kind of miss as precursors or miss as obstacles and things to keep you away from the truth, to obscure the truth from you. And so I, Gerard's the one arguing, I think, for the, the latter view, that the ancient pagan gods are demons. Uh, and so to understand demons, you have to go to the head of the demons, and that would be Satan himself. And so you have to understand the operations of Satan as the accuser in, in the biggest way. And then you see what all these smaller demons are fundamentally doing as offshoots of the, of the head of the demons, Satan and his accusation. And so then the, the strange passage that Gerard focuses in on is when Jesus talks about Satan, he says, uh, can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself will not stand. And then he says, I you, you have to bind the strong man. So the, the way that that passage usually gets read is well, Satan is just, you know, he doesn't make any sense because he's divided and he's going to collapse. And as though his mistake is to be divided against himself. But Gerard picks that stick up from their other end and says, No, the point is. The Satan always is divided against himself, and his, that kingdom of dividing itself against itself is what finally cannot stand in the future if Christ's kingdom is to, is to take over. And the way he will do that is he has to bind the strong man. He's got to bind the strong man of Satan, and the way he binds him is to expose how he works, but then to render, render it ineffective that it doesn't work anymore once you see it, and you see the operations of Satan as the accuser, then he can't work anymore and you, and the strong man's been bound, and now the kingdom of God is available in a way it, it was never available insofar as Satan gave you the kingdom of human beings, which is always Satan accusing Satan, the kingdom divided against itself, and always the accusation of someone, you're satanic, you're demonic, we have to cast you out, and now we're purged of Satan and demonism, et cetera. So that's why he divides himself, but then he unifies always. The way you have to get rid of Satan is something radically different than accusation, Satan the accuser. You need the paraclete, the one who's your advocate, who doesn't say you're guilty, therefore get out. Somehow you're guilty, but you're still included. You won't be cast out. And that's what the cross becomes kind of the opposite of what Satan is doing, that he takes the accusation upon himself. So now you can no longer condemn anybody else because Christ becomes condemned for the whole world. So then who are we to condemn anybody? We can never condemn anybody else's you are the problem we can't condemn as in the way that Satan condemns, so there's now no condemnation in Christ Jesus because he's taken the condemnation upon himself, so now Satan's rendered helpless because his whole kingdom is founded upon finding somebody to condemn and cast out of the city to found the city of politics, whatever sort
2: yeah and just to kind of um get a little so a little more clarity on the the whole Satan discussion, so Gerard has a fairly unique as far as I can tell, discussion on what, you know, what Satan is. Can you kind of elaborate a little bit more like this is, according to Gerard, when he says Satan, this is what he, this is what he means.
0: Yeah. Well, it, he's the prince of this world. So princess in the sense that he's the political principle at the heart of all actual political regimes that are, aren't part of the kingdom of God. So what is the principle behind everything? It's this strange active intelligence, but it's kind of disembodied, but it's an intelligence where somehow you condemn somebody as the enemy or the source of trouble or the thing that's causing civil war in the city, and then you, by condemning it, you bring peace in civilization by the inside now being a city, so to speak, hence politics, but the outside being the thing that made that inside possible. And so all cities go back to fundamentally this operation of Satan. So that's how he's the prince of this world. This is how the world achieves peace in the absence of the true prince of peace, is that it achieves peace by, so to speak, casting out war and putting it on the hands of somebody outside. They're the source of war. They're the source of conflict. And now we get it outside, we destroy it, we murder it, we stone it, whatever the mode is, now we have peace on the inside. But that peace, which seems to be for its own sake, is predicated actually on the war needed to make it happen. So hence, Satan is called a liar and a murderer from the beginning because he's got to murder that outside thing. and He's got to lie about it, saying that's the source of your disorder. And then you have the illusory peace within, but you've not noticed the lie and the murder without that made it possible.
1: And so that movement from civil peace to civil war back to civil peace Jard says that's what the myths are showing you, but they're not really showing you they're concealing it and making it put kind of putting it in silver, making it look real nice, but really there's something really rotten underneath them. And he offers this episode from the life of Apollonius of Tyana as kind of a, a missing link. If you th- kind of think about like evolutionary biology, <laughs> like you have, you have these kind of glorious myths about Apollo and Zeus which are just kind of gorgeous, and then you have the exposure of the rottenness in the Gospels. Uh, but how do you how do you show that the Gospels exposing myth? And he says, "Well, this is something like a missing link. It's this not quite mythified, but partially mythified story, and in it, you have a city that has uh, an epidemic raging, and." The city's trying to figure out how do we how do we heal the city? And Apollonius, this kind of miracle worker who's going around in like second century A.D., so shortly after Christ, he comes to the city and says, look at this. Look at this man over here. And it's this kind of uh, beggar in rags. He's a demon. He's the one causing it. And he gets the people to stone the beggar to death. And then the plague is lifted, and they set up a shrine to Hercules at the place of the stoning. And so I think we can kind of use that story to explain some of how this mimetic cycle works, what mimetic contagion means, what the scapegoat mechanism is, how this catharsis and foundational murder is. You want to kind of give us the give us the vocab and how it plugs into that story? Well, the 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 thing
0: that shows how all the myths are generated in that story is. The hostility you feel towards whoever's cast out. They're a beggar or like Oedipus, they have a swollen foot or whatever, or you know, the MF word that you could accuse uh Oedipus of being, right? That hostility you feel when you cast the person out, it now almost behind your back becomes this glorious, divine, beautiful God. And so the gods always have two faces. The face that's cast out, that's the hostile, the terrible thing. But then they become beautiful because of the peace they brought about. So the whole silver, you could say that Lewis mentions of the gods, is the peace brought about by this casting out, this scapegoat mechanism, as Gerard calls it. So that's why the gods are worshipped.
1: So things are so dire in the city that we're we're on the brink. The city is divided. We're on the brink of an all-out kind of Hobbesian civil war. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we can focus all of our hostility on one evil person right supposedly evil person and then we we all feel better because we kind of pinned all the tension on him and we killed him and now our problems are gone
0: yeah right and this is why you always have duality in gods like zeus is god father of the gods but I mean, he's also a famous philander he also he castrated his dad and uh <laughs> and so they always have this backstory uh where they get away with things that we'd never get away with and we'd be angry if somebody else did them well, the gods can do that because that is their backstory. Before they became gods, they were that very thing that we had to cast out because, yeah, that's causing disorder because it's like us, but, you know, different from us. And now they still have that shadow behind them. The shadow is the, the two-faced quality of inside and outside. Outside, they're terrible and what we most fear in ourselves and each other, but inside they are this restorative, unifying, peace-giving uh, power profound power the, the power behind all civilization mm-hmm. the way the gods of greece are the gods of civilization but they they never can exist without the again the backstory because they're literally two-faced because the whole thing is a two-faced operation of satan he always has both things going on at once
2: so it's, it seems that the dynamic so to speak of satan expelling satan is it's kind of it's a, it's a mere appearance because it's not it's not really Satan spelling Satan, is Satan finding a convenient decoy in order to remain in the in the city,
0: yeah, but not it's not for him to remain. He in one sense is like the embodiment of human politics apart from God. So that's again why he's Prince of the world. So he's not trying to preserve himself as though he's got separate interests. He is the in one sense the city. That's why that famous saying, volks populize, volks dei, they're kind of, Satan is just the city projected up because it's the mechanism in any group of human beings. This is how human beings, what they need to do to live together with one another. Somehow they can't function without periodically having to engage in this, whether actually that they actually had to cast somebody out and murder them, or they do it in terms of ritual. They have to ritually go through this process, and then ritual becomes the foundation of many City, because in the ritual, in the rituals over the religion, you're reenacting this process and you got to do it step by step by step. Make sure you get every detail right because then it'll work uh, without leading to further violence. It'll actually lead to the peace you brought about. Hmm. So, whether it be God or the ritual or the actual act of murder, they're all kind of one and the same thing. They're all the different aspects of Satan. So, he's kind of like the incarnation, not really an incarnation of that thing. He's not a separate operator here.
1: So it's a pretty bleak view of human social and political life that (laughs) humans can't really live together without periodic murder or sacrifice. They need regular bloodshed to keep going. And so why, why is human society always on the brink of this kind of, uh, mass destruction? What, and this is, this is mimesis, right? Mimetic rivalry. What's, what's going on with that?
0: Yeah. Right. Well, two, two things. One is that, yeah, th- this is called otherwise known as sin. So, Gerard's not really <laughs> saying anything else, but he's just talking about sin. Okay, what's the first overt glimpse of sin in the Bible? Uh, Cain his brother Abel. Okay, so what are they doing? They're they're rivals of one another. Uh, they're rivals for seemingly God's favor. Okay, and yet God chooses Abel's sacrifice, but Cain, he could have happily not got angry about it. That's why God says sin is couching at the door, but You must master it. Well, he fails to master it, and so that's that leads to the murder. So, what is it that he fails to master? That's seen in Gerard Briggs out, and I think it's clear, which is what's prior to Adam and Eve, uh, prior to Cain and Abel. Which is Adam and Eve did engage in this already, and that they coveted the wisdom of God when they listened to the servant. They coveted what God possesses—the knowledge of good and evil—in that tree. They thought that God actually was trying to keep it from them. So that act of coveting, that's why the 10th commandment is the source of all the other crimes that commands are trying to prevent, is that if you want your neighbor's stuff, the problem is you think you can only have it if you take it from your neighbor, rather than actually getting it through God. And then you can share in it, you think you have to take it from your neighbor. So finally, it leads to murder and adultery and everything else comes from that. Well, that's what Adam and Eve did, is they coveted the knowledge of God, but that involved actually wanting to kill God and each other. So that act of coveting the God's knowledge of good and evil finally led to God himself being killed, because that's what they wanted to do from the get-go, just like Cain wanted to kill Abel. So murder, and fundamentally even murdering God himself is the heart of the whole nature of sin, but it's also the good news that God allows himself to be murdered. We fully enact what otherwise we lie about and don't quite see what we're doing. It happens. We know not what we do. We see exactly what we want to do on the cross And by seeing it and because of who we do it to, we now could overcome that fundamental sin that's behind everything.
1: So just to take it back to the garden,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: on one level, it's and this is kind of a popular reading and has been for a while. uh, Adam and Eve were right. And Satan was telling the truth, actually, that God doesn't want them to become his rivals. He's he's keeping the knowledge of good and evil from them. Uh, and then mm-hmm. once they get the knowledge, he has to drive them out of the garden, lest they eat from the tree of life, because they're going to really become like gods. And so God's just this kind of jealous tyrant who wants to lord it over people, and people just need to take the Promethean step. Mm-hmm. Why, why? Why is why is that wrong?
0: Well, that's the <laughs> satanic argument. That's that's just unpacking what the serpent said. And It's also, by the way, the romantic argument. That's Rousseau's account of the fall. But but it, it makes sense in this sense that this, this is why we tend to be uh, rivalrous towards one another, mm-hmm. is that so-and-so, like a kid in a sandbox, the kid's playing with a toy. Okay, we now want that toy because the kid's playing with it. Uh, so we're imitating the kid. They tell us they should desire that toy. But what comes into existence along with that is the kid that's playing with the toy is now keeping us from that toy. So the kid playing with the toy has become both our model, that's the toy we're playing with. But now it's become our obstacle and rival that kid's in the way of us playing with that toy. So then that hostility in the playground is the hostility that Satan elicits with God, that God has the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. Because God has it, that's why we should want it. But also it's God's. And so you can't have it and that pisses you off. He's keeping this good thing from you. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so it's all sandbox stuff. Okay. But if you pay close attention to the story, and then of course, what later happens No, God actually wants you to have that toy. Uh, But the only way you can have that toy is if you first recognize that uh, you should want it, but you have to want it by him giving it to you rather than you taking it. And so what would Adam and Eve
1: have done if they obeyed? So you're saying the fruit from the tree was at some point going to be given to Adam and Eve?
0: Oh, yeah, I think that clearly, I mean, think of Adam and had obeyed. If he hadn't listened to the voice of his wife and she hadn't listened to the voice of the servant, then he would have had the knowledge of good and evil. Because what is good and evil? To obey God. And now he knows what God knows. So then their eyes would have truly have been open. But because they had to grasp it from God and take it as though from a rival, then when their eyes were open, actually, ironically, their eyes weren't open at all, then they covered themselves. So that covering is the lie. They immediately had to lie and hide something from each other, and hide from God. Their bodies. That need to hide is the fact that it's now become an unshareable thing that you have to hide this quality. Whereas they could have had eyes totally wide open, seeing the knowledge of good and evil if they obeyed. Because then, yeah, well, that's what good and evil look. What is good? To obey God mm-hmm. and to have everything through Him and as a gift from Him. But evil, which they can't know they have to hide, is now that you think you can only have things by somehow taking them from the person that has it. That you have displaced the owner, envy. In other words, mm-hmm. so now our desires are envious desires because we have to somehow take away in order to have, rather than we could have and it's been given to us by God. And then that would be the true good that's abundant and shareable. Whereas now our good is always something my good is your evil, and your evil is my good, and it's unshareable, it leads to conflict and war.
1: Yeah, Gerard has in this book a great little exposition of the Ten Commandments, uh, and he says. The tenth commandment do not envy has this kind of afterthought quality, seemingly do not envy your neighbor's house, wife, donkey, on and on, or anything else he has it's kind of it it feels like God's just kind of like trying to think of all the other bad things, but Jard's argument is actually this commandment is kind of the the source of all the other prohibitions um. It's envy itself that ends up creating the need to murder, um, commit adultery, steal, give false testimony. If you didn't have envy, you wouldn't be doing all those other things to begin right, with. Right? Yeah. And, and
0: the, the thing that elucidates his, his account is, is we are looking at the neighbor's house, their wife. We're looking at these objects. Mm-hmm. But, but the last thing actually draws our attention not to any of the objects, but the person who has those objects. The last commandment draws attention away from things to interpersonal relationships. That's where the real action is. It's really your relationship to that person that you might murder in order to get those things. That shows that you really don't care about the things at all. You care about the person that tells you to want those things. Mm -hmm. So that's why that interpersonal thing is so key. And then that, of course, leads to the interpersonal thing. What's the solution to why you disobey all the commandments? You have to love your Lord, your God with all your heart, with all your mind. That's the fundamental thing, and that's a personal relationship to God. you got to get that right, and then all these things can be added to you if you get overcome that envy fundamentally of God himself, not to mention your neighbor
1: yeah gerard's Gerard's discussion of the Ten Commandments focuses on those social prohibitions, um but I think it would actually be helped his account would be better if he spent some more time on the first half of the Decalogue, which he from my memory doesn't spend a lot of time talking about but the um the stuff that enjoin the part the commandments that enjoin worship of god and then the the one uh social commandment that is positive honor thy father and mother yeah, yeah. um mm-hmm. this seems stuff it, it makes a very cohesive whole even with mm-hmm. Gerard's kind of strange account of the 10th commandment
0: mhm right yeah and and Gerard deals with that but in a not a fully effective way by distinguishing between what he calls internal mediation. And that would be like Cain and Abel. That's two brothers squabbling over something. Uh, And that leads to this conflict that leads to the plague. Uh, But the solution for Gerard that avoids the plague is external mediation. And that would be where you honor your father and whatever your father says is good. You do it because your father says it's good. And then you don't tend to come into conflict with fathers. But if the father's off the scene, if you lose the external mediation, then it becomes a quarrel between brothers. So he tends to have external versus internal mediation. And external mediation can lead to a better civilization, better structures. But still, the problem is uh, he can't really account for that except that it's external and higher. He can't really account for that there's something going on vis-a-vis nature, because nature is the oldest thing of all, even older than your parents. And God's with nature. So fundamentally, external mediation is loving God and honoring your father and mother. That's the solution to all those things. But, but notice that shareable. If you, if you love what your father has, uh, like your mom, to get uh, edipedal which Gerard does.
1: Yeah, I want to talk about Oedipus versus Joseph, the biblical story of Joseph. because And so we, you feel free to just launch into it. But just as preface, Gerard um, kind of compares and contrasts these two stories of we can have the Greek story of Oedipus versus the biblical story of Joseph. So, yes. So you love what you, you do the external mediation, you honor your father. You're like, okay, dad, what you love, I'll love. This is how we have a stable society, but then you end up loving your mother. Right. This is yeah. a problem.
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 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 well, you, well, you love your mother, but see the, the thing with Oedipus is, yeah, he loves his mother, but to get his mother, he's got to get rid of his dad because his dad is the rival standing in the way of his mother. Well, uh, the way you actually love your mother is you love your mother the way your father loves her. Then it becomes a shareable love and it doesn't, you're not trying to possess your mother. If you try to possess your mother, you're edipedal. But if you love your mother and once such, then you also love your brothers. You love the outside world because you love your mother the way your father loves your mother. Now notice the way your father loves your mother. He loves her not as his concubine, as his mistress. He loves your mother as his wife. And so, and you are the legitimate kids of this.
1: I don't, how, how does that resolve the, t- the problem? You don't You don't want to love your mother as your wife like your father does. No,
0: you, well, it, this is the thing. Wives are shareable. Mistresses, concubines are not shareable. That sounds strange. Because they're <laughs> your dad's possession. But it, his wife is not his possession. Hmm. He doesn't possess her. He shares her through the law. He was married in a ceremony. That's why you leave your father and mother and you join with your, a wife, because this becomes a shareable unit of a man and a woman. Legitimate children are an extension of that. The man shares through the law, you share through your mother. So this becomes a shareable thing that you can have. Many people can share in it without it being my possession versus your possession.
1: Shareable, not in the kind of crass sexual sense, but in the kind of a bigger sexual or erotic true. sense in that yeah, true shareable. Uh, yeah. You, you get hooked into the city because mm-hmm. you're yeah. a citizen, your children mm-hmm. through your wife are citizens of the city, right? Is that what you mean? Oh, yeah, but 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 no, Naodosus,
0: it isn't just non-sexual. Just think of this relative to the kind of the counter to the Oedipus. Let's say the Oedipus story is kind of demonic, as we've been talking about. It's right. it's a satanic counterfeit. What's it a counterfeit of? Christ's relationship to his mother and his father. So, Christ obeys his father. Okay, well, who is his mother? In one sense, the his mother is the church, his Mary. And yet he's married to his mother. Mother church is also the bride of Christ. She's both mother and bride. And notice her womb is infinitely shareable. Baptism, when you're baptized in the womb of the church, you're born out of this this womb. All the children now share in the mother. So there you have the real thing of shareable bodies, shareable marriage, shareable children that is the way things should be. Uh, But the corruption of Oedipus is just the opposite because it's merely sexual possession rather than the fecundity of genuine desire for the good in God that then makes everybody brothers and sisters rather than and everybody. In one sense, you share wives in common. So the idea of a sacramental marriage is it isn't, oh, yeah, they're getting married and we're not. There's a way because of the sacramental, you're partaking in this because the real mystery is the nuptial mystery of Christ's marriage to his church. That's the real marriage going on. And the actual sacramental marriage performed before you in church is partaking in that larger marriage. And everybody in the audience partakes in that larger marriage. So it is a shareable marriage. Hmm. And that's sacramental marriage or shareable. Uh, Private natural marriages aren't shareable. And they they tempt you towards a form of, you know, Oedipus competition.
1: So can you say that the Oedipus story, even if it is operating in this demonic way, is kind of negative majority on account of myth, is still something like a preparatio for the gospel <laughs> it's it's a little bit yeah. John the Baptist e in that it illuminates some ultimate desire if if Christianity and the idea of the nuptial mystery and Christ marrying his church is the final destiny of humans and the cosmos mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. the Oedipus story is trying to give an account of uh, why that desire exists or um, it's trying to give an account of something in the human heart. Yeah, 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 And so it does prepare you. It does open your eyes in a certain way, right?
0: Well, in the same way sin, sin prepares you for. In other <laughs> words, read the beginning of Romans, you know, Paul's whole str- strategy is show how we are all guilty, uh, that we're all condemned. You condemn others, you condemn yourself. So, when you see that everybody's taken together in sin, now that is the preparation for the gospel. And then you can share the good news because you fundamentally seen the, the old news, not the old news, but the old, old, uh, that you need to be saved from. So, you could look at the whole thing this way. If Christ was crucified from the foundation of the world, when he created the world, he created the world in which he's going to be crucified. Okay, so that means then that this whole idea of casting out Jesus being crucified somehow is already in the world from the beginning. So already Satan is also always the Antichrist. He's got nothing to offer uh, content-wise that hasn't been given to him already. He can't generate anything new. So even sin is a parasite. It's living on the blood of the host, literally and figuratively. It has no blood to offer. It doesn't generate any life of its own. So it can only be the corruption of something that's already there that is before it and is after it temporally. Uh, and so, yeah, in that sense, Oedipus is, as a the archetype of human sin, it really is dependent upon something that precedes it, and that is Christ's relationship to his church that comes before it all.
1: So then in contrast to that, you have the Joseph story, which rather than being parasitic, is, is really revelatory. It really tells yeah. you something. So what are the parallels that Gerard draws between the Oedipus story and the story of Joseph? Well, the, he's the one cast out by his brothers. You know, they and they
0: because of envy, mm-hmm. they're envious of his coat. But above all, they're envious because of his father's love. Is that Joseph is the special son of uh, uh, the mom, who's the beloved of Jacob? That's the one. What's her Rebecca? No, not Rebecca. Okay. Joseph's mom. What's her name again? Uh, Blanking.
2: Right, Ra- Rachel. Rachel?
0: Rachel. Rachel, yeah, yeah, Rachel, of course, yeah, I should know yeah, the, the Representing contemplation, right? And Leah re- represents work, but yeah. Ra- so this is the object of pure desire, the highest desire of Jacob is Rachel, mm-hmm. and so he has two children, Benjamin and uh, Joseph, from her. That's what the sons are really envious of. It, it also is very close to the story of the of the prodigal son mm-hmm. and, and the son that stays at home, because they have the challenge like the son that stays at home to see that that beloved prodigal son is how God operates. He does have his beloveds, but the ones that aren't the beloveds, they have to overcome their envy. And so, so the envy the brothers have towards Joseph is fundamentally what everyone has to overcome. And the, the whole terrible thing that happens, Joseph comments at the end by saying you intended it for evil, but God had intended it that you for good, that you'd be kept alive till this day. And so that, that, strange pattern that humans are intending it for evil sin, and that's based on envy and rivalry. God is using that envy and rivalry to bring good out of it. And the fundamental way he'll do that will be the crucifixion. That's how he'll bring good out of this human intention of evil. But it's played out with Joseph. He's the guy that kind of comments on this from within before it happens. Hmm. And so he he, he, give, he couches it in the largest theological account, but also in the relationship uh, that he has towards his father and the brothers have towards their father. And also in terms of um, why Jude is such a big player, because Jude is the one that finally realizes what's going on and says, oh, uh, you can't take Benjamin. It's all stuff with Benjamin and the silver cup hidden in his bags you can't take him and we can't go back without Benjamin and break my father's heart. Right. And so that's how Joseph realized, ah, oh, finally, now Judah really cares about his father's heart so he can be reconciled with his father because he's overcome his envy of uh, Benjamin. He's overcome his envy of Joseph. Mm-hmm. Fundamentally, everybody has to overcome their envy that we have towards our brothers. And then we share, get our brothers back, so to speak, from the dead mm-hmm. without envy. Right. And Joseph's kind of foretaste of all this. Right.
2: And so the the parallels or the tie-ins between Oedipus and Joseph are, well, so I think I I think I miss like if you have to s- summarize them on bullet point what were the what were the parallels there?
0: Uh, well, Joseph is uh, killed by his brothers, that's the key thing. And so Jesus comes in amongst all his brothers, and yet they turn on him. But then he is the one that finally will reconcile the brothers to their father and to their crimes. In other words, they now realize that they have what they've done to Joseph at the very minute uh, that Joseph is going to reveal that to him. He's also going to reveal that he's bringing them back from the dead and sending them back to their father, but reconciled now. So they not only see what they've done, but they also realize the only solution is to be willing to lay down your life as Judah's willing to do for the sake of Benjamin. Keep me in Egypt, but send Benjamin back home to my son. So now they're also intuiting what you have to do to reconcile. You have to be willing to die for one another, to sacrifice yourself for one another, rather than sacrifice them as they earlier did with Joseph.
1: And, and in the beginning parts of the story as well, there's um, a bunch of connections. So they're both Oedipus and Joseph are expelled because of rivalry. Oedipus, there's a prophecy that Oedipus will kill his father and sleep with his mother, and so they have to expel him out of the city. Uh, just like Joseph is expelled from his family. Um, And then they both become oracles in a certain sense. Oedipus is interpreting the riddle of the Sphinx and uh, resolving the crisis in Thebes because of that, because the Sphinx is eating um, travelers, whereas Joseph uh, interprets the dream of the Pharaoh and saves them from famine. Um, and then they both rise to become princes in a foreign town, uh, as they're foreign princes. Joseph is, uh, the right hand of Pharaoh and Oedipus is supposedly not from Thebes. Um, and he becomes the king. Right. And so they both rise in a mm. very similar fashion.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's interesting about the solving of the riddle. Um, eh, to kind of make that parallel a little bit stronger. Uh, Robert Alter, in his um, translation of the Old Testament, has a, a note on, on the phrase, the interpretation of dreams. He says that probably a better translation would be the solution of the dreams, and talks about how in Egypt, there's these schools of, that teach you how to interpret dreams. And the, the basic idea is that if you are attentive to the content of the dreams— you could figure out what's going on. So in other words, the the interpretation or the solution of the dream is not some sort of esoteric meaning that's superimposed on the dream, but it's something that's really there and that human wisdom could perceive. Um of course human even human wisdom is a gift from God, but it's just interesting to think
1: of both Oedipus and Josephus in a sense solving a riddle um yeah. Whose solution is present in the question, but you just have to be perspicacious enough to see it.
0: But, but there's a big difference. Uh, Joseph, early on, when, when he has the dream that the brother, that is going to bow down and worship him, he kind of, this is his big flaw. He seems to imply that, well, yeah, they're going to deserve to worship me. In other words, he seems to be full of himself at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But then when he's thrown in, in the prison and he goes and uh, he's in prison two or three times. Now he finally learns humility, so when he interprets dreams, he always gives credit to God being the one that can do this. Whereas early on, he seems to be full of himself. By the end, he, so to speak, emptied himself out. It's just God that can do it. Whereas Oedipus just the opposite. He brags that I had the ability to solve the riddle of the Sphinx. I am the wise one here. I could get to the bottom of what's causing this new plague. So being full of himself, he then is rendered, he's humiliated not in a, uh educative way, but in the opposite, whereas Joseph was humiliated, but he actually educated him to true nature of, where's the solution found? Not in me, but in God. So one glorifies God as the knower, the other one glorifies the human, but then that human that is brought up then is laid low, because cause oracles are always going to stick it to you, whereas here the oracles are actually <laughs> God's good news is going to lead to a good result, whereas the oracles are just terrible in Oedipus.
1: Right. And so here I want to just read a bit from Girard because I think it, it's helpful to see. He drives, draws all these parallels, but then, like you're saying, just absolutely distinguishes them as just totally incommensurable. Uh, the lesson of the myth and the lesson of the Joseph story are totally different. He says, the myth and the biblical story are in basic opposition over the decisive question that collective violence poses. Is it warranted? is it legitimate? In the myth, the expulsions of the hero are justified each time. So that's the first expulsion when he's a baby and the second expulsion after his crimes are revealed. In the biblical account, they never are. Collective violence is unjustifiable. Laius and Jocasta have good reason to rid themselves of a son who at some point in the future will kill the one and marry the other. The Thebans also have good reason to rid themselves of their king. Oedipus really committed the infamous acts the oracle prophesied, and to top it all, he gave the plague to the whole city. In the myth, the victim is always wrong, and his persecutors are always right. The reverse is true in the Bible. Joseph is in the right against his brothers, as well as the next two times against the Egyptians, who imprison him. He is in the right against the wanton wife, who accused him of trying to rape her. Potiphar, Joseph's master, treats his young slave as though he's really his son. And so the accusation raised against Joseph recalls the accusation of incest made against Oedipus. But of course, in the end, Joseph's innocent and God, like Joseph says, God used it for good, he used all this persecution, this um, unjust scapegoating of of uh, Joseph for ultimate providential ends, uh, this, the saving of the whole house of Jacob, rather than a plague, which is what Oedipus brings upon Thebes. Well, that's, that's where I kind of take an ex-
0: exception with Gerard. I think he overplays that. Okay. Uh, because it isn't that uh, Joseph is right and they're in the wrong. It's that Joseph is no more in the wrong than they are. Hmm. So that's very different. So it's the same with Oedipus.
1: What do you mean? He's no more
0: no more in the wrong. In other words, Oedipus is a mf'er. Okay. In the story, <laughs> that's the yeah. way of looking at him. But he really is because all humans are. See, so the, the 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 lie of Oedipus is that somehow he's uniquely this guy that's doing these terrible things, and we are innocent of that. The biblical story is that, oh, no, nobody's guilty of that kind of thing. No, it's that we're all guilty of that. We're all Oedipus. And so the lie of... We're all Oedipus. Yeah, we're all Oedipedal, yeah.
1: So Freud, Freud is
0: right. And so th- that's why we can't cast him out as though somehow you condemn others, you do not condemn yourself. The thing is that, yeah, everybody's worthy of condemnation. I see but that's precisely why he doesn't condemn you because he takes the condemnation upon himself, but he does take, Christ takes condemnation upon himself.
1: Cause it all goes back to the garden. We all, you're saying we all want to kill God because we want to have our, yeah, we want to grasp hold of divine knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil and have yeah. our own. And we're going to be the ones who decide what's, what's good and evil. We don't want to listen to anybody else. I know what's good. And that's to put yourself in the position of God, which makes you a murderer. Yeah, yeah. Because if you want to be God, you've got to kill the God who's there right now.
0: Yeah, a murderer and worse, yeah. yeah and that's why it's Oedipito, you're a murderer of your dad, God their father. But you also are sleeping with your mom. What does that mean? Well, you want to sleep with yourself. So to sleep with yourself, you, you have to kill the true God. And to sleep with yourself is to sleep with yourself as though you are your own object of desire, as though you are your own God, idolatry. And so, idolatry is the, you know, the adipetal quality of sleeping with your mom. You're the snake biting its tail. You're returning to your origins as though you can give birth to yourself. So, that's what we, as Plato says, that's the dream of everybody. You, you dream as though everybody dreams that they're sleeping with their mother. Eucostas says that, oh, all men have, sl- have dreamed they sleeping with their mom, but don't get upset about it. It's just a dream. Well, the Bible says, no, it's not a dream. This is the desire of you to be God's. This is idolatry. This is why everybody's saying that, because to sleep with your mom is to, be, is to be worshiping yourself as your own God, giving birth to yourself.
1: So then to go back to the Ten Commandments, you, you see those two things addressed in the first two commandments. Love God. Love the Lord as your God. Idols. And so the first one corresponds to Elias. Don't kill your father. And the second one corresponds to Jocasta. Um, don't worship your yeah, own yeah. origin. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Right. Yeah. Uh-huh, that's great.
2: To go back to so Ryan, it seems like you were trying to make a distinction between how you know, the the v- victims versus oppressors are treated in these two narratives, and in one they are justified. So the the narrative says those who drove Oedipus out, they're in the right,
1: and that's how that's how mythic stuff works always. Right, Gerard's arguing that. Uh yeah, the, the person who's murdered or killed or whatever deserved it. He had it coming. He is guilty. We're all innocent.
2: Yeah, and it seems that in the Old Testament narrative, you can have a fuller picture. You can think of Joseph as being, you know, a sinner just like everyone else, and still think still see the brothers as acting unjustly. They are not justified. Uh and it seems that it's that sort of um in a sense, moral nuance that also distinguishes these two these two narratives, where you don't have these kind of polar opposites of, you know, you're supposed to think of these folks as totally in the right and these other folks as totally in the wrong.
0: Yeah, that that's a good way. to the polar the polar opposition is the lie. Whereas if everybody realized they're mutual sinners, how could ever anyone cast out anybody else? Because you're all you're all in this together under your God, your Father. So. It, Even if everybody's revolting against God, God doesn't cast anybody out.
2: And um, just, you mentioned um, Gerard overplaying certain things. I'm wondering if the Joseph narrative might be an example where, what does he call it? The mimetic cycle or the cycle of rivalry um, doesn't, doesn't map on perfectly. The brothers initially want to kill Joseph. One of the brothers says, What will we gain from that? <laughs> what will we gain from that? Not much. Let's, let's sell him with that. We make a profit <laughs> at least. <laughs> right. And so, and so, um, Joseph, just in a sense, like Jesus gets sold for silver and Joseph is sent off. And I don't know that there's this sense that now that they've gotten rid of Joseph, th- there is a kind of harmony, uh, because Joseph is out. But it doesn't seem like they're looking back on Joseph and it's like, ah, oh, what a, he brought this, you know, this harmony to us, the, like this this kind of double-faced dynamic that you were discussing with the gods. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem to map onto Joseph, but maybe, I, I don't know if you have any any thoughts on, on that.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's because it's the story of the unraveling of it. So Gerard will look at the disciples this way. He'll say that what happens in the gospel narrative is there's dissent against the unanimity against Christ. And the disciples are the first fruits of that dissent. They, they break the unanimity of that. And I think that's already going on, as you point out with Joseph is, is they kind of know they got to lie about it. They kind of know they're lying about it with the the blood on the cloak, but they also, Joseph brings out that they're still feeling guilty about it. And that, that, that him doing all those tricks he does with the, going back to your father and the things he says to them, he's touching their conscience and they realize they're criminals. So they they really know they haven't hid the crime so much that they've forgotten it. they know it's there. And so that's how the biblical stories are all the unraveling of the unanimity. It's never unanimous anymore uh, because it's slowly being exposed. So the old Testament is a slow exposure by bringing out sin as a category that you're breaking through Satan's uh, unanimous, uh, Circling and casting it out, it's broken down, and then that prepares you for the gospel. And then, so you can see what's going on, even though breaking down the unanimity is not enough to stop you from doing it. You need something more radical to stop you from doing it
2: or trying. Just to kind of expand expand a little bit on how Joseph um, is kind of hitting them in their conscience. It's it's amazing just how subtle the Old Testament narrative does this. Like when when they're going back from Egypt. And they find silver in their own yeah, bags. Right, exactly. You, you know, right. it's like yeah. you, you, you do that, and it's <laughs> right, like. Yeah. But then, if you kind of pause, there, it's like wait. Why are we getting a ref- a refund for what?
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly. right. <yeah>.
2: <laughs> <laughs> What's going on here?
0: Uh-huh, it's right, just like yeah. these,
2: these little details that mm-hmm. just have a whole lot of meaning. Um, yeah.
0: And, and then uh, another guy, I think Sternberg made this argument, maybe his altar, too. That, but when Joseph, when Jacob sees that they have silver, he's kind of, that makes him more hesitant to send Benjamin back. Because he's thinking, well, maybe they might sell Benjamin. That he's he gets suspicious of his own sons, what they might be up to. So he doesn't want to trust them with his son. So he has the suspicions as well as to what's really going on on these strange trips. So they return to one of his kids. <laughs> with
1: all the silver. <laughs>
0: <laughs> right, exactly. What happened? <laughs> yeah. Well,
2: yeah. And the and the, the, the brothers uh, the, the are already in, uh, in a really bad place because they come back and they're like, you know, they want Joseph and... Um, Jacob has this speech where he basically says, Benjamin is the only one left. I I can all, I can only imagine the brothers just
1: like we're gonna kill this guy too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <It's> like, really? <laughs> what about us? So <laughs> Right. <laughs> um so so I wanna kind of zoom out now from the Joseph story and think more globally about uh, the whole Bible. Um, Patrick, you said that, uh, the old Testament is the slow exposure of this kind of mimetic cycle, which then reaches its high point in the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So we started with kind of the garden of Eden, where you have humans trying to rival God to kill the father and sleep with the mother. And then as soon as they do that, they think they're opening their eyes, but really they have to hide themselves. And so they Put these um, fig leaf loincloths over themselves, which God then exchanges for animal skins. Why?
0: Because that's, that's his act of mercy that, that by having to kill an animal to cover their nakedness, they can't forget that the somehow bloodshed's involved. They can't forget kind of a murderous quality. Because that's what, apart from God doing this with human sacrifice, they, they want to forget what they're doing, totally lie about it. But by God killing the first animal, And then accepting Abel's sacrifice involves killing an animal as well. God is always reminding them what's being hidden, that they're murderers, but they're displacing it. So he's making them aware of kind of the way they're lying to themselves and the nature of the lie and what they're covering up. So they don't forget the cover up. So it's a merciful covering because if they didn't cover it up, they'd kill each other. Adam would kill Eve, Eve would kill Adam, Cain would kill Abel, Abel would kill Cain, and Abel would kill Cain too. But he's wise enough to know, ah, oh, but if I kill an animal, then I won't kill my brother. Whereas Cain doesn't kill an animal. He kills his brother. He doesn't know he needs the medicine, the merciful medicine of uh, sacrifice. Abel knows he needs the merciful medicine. So the whole that gives you the kind of logic of all the sacrificial rituals in the Old Testament. This is merciful and Noah, medicine.
1: Because what, what what do we see in Noah with the pouring the blood on the ground? and
0: Yeah, well, Noah makes it clear. He brings animals on the ark that are going to be sacrificed. So that's how important they are. But prior to this thing, notice Noah not, has not been allowed to eat any animals. Uh, that detail, he's for the first time is allowed to eat animals. But it says, but when you eat an animal, you've got to pour its blood out on the ground because you are made in the image and likeness of God. So there there God makes explicit the connection of pouring an animal's blood on the ground to the fact that you somehow disperse the image of God in you by becoming a murderer, but it still remains. And so you have to not forget what's going on by pouring the blood out. But the dread of the animals before you is kind of the dread now human beings have had been prior to this towards one another, that Abel should have a dread of uh, Cain and Eve has a dread of Adam and Adam has a dread of Eve. They all have dread because they become predators to one another. And so then when humans prey on animals, that's just making manifest outwardly the way they're preying on one another internally. So they can't always, they can never forget that. So the blood is the key from that, the animal skins that covers the enemy's nakedness throughout the Bible, you follow the blood. And then finally, when you get to the blood, when Christ holds up the cup and says, this is my blood, now you've been trained to understand what that blood is. This is the blood of the new covenant, so now blood's been transformed now it can actually finally expose it and yet overcome the need to shed blood, so that's the once and for all sacrifice, Christ on blood, where you actually get to do what you wanted to do from the beginning, kill God as your rival, you finally murder God once you murder God, that murder is the only thing because of who you've murdered that can change the heart of us that wants to murder when he comes back from the dead. so I can become the once and for all sacrifice
2: by the way, the way that um I forget the exact wording, and I think the exact wording might be really important for this one. So, if you, if any of you remembers the passage, but it's either Girardi either says that the crucifixion exposes the mimetic cycle or exposes the scapegoating mechanism, or he says, or, or he adds a little bit more intentionality to it. You know. Jesus dies in order to um, to expose the um, scapegoating mechanism, right? Which is this whole Satan uh, expelling Satan dynamic that we've discussed. Does does Gerard kind of make that totalizing like this is this is everything? This is this is the gospel, or does he does he have room for? For a fuller, what I, what I would say, probably a fuller explanation of the gospel of you know, Christ dying to atone for the sins of the world? Or is that concept for him contained in um, exposing the scapegoating mechanism? But
0: well, this may have been the passage you're thinking of. And at the bottom of 191, he has this short paragraph that uses language right out of the Bible and he connects it to his argument. So this would be a good way of addressing your question. He says, The resurrection powers Peter and Paul as well as all believers after them, to understand that all imprisonment and sacred violence is violence done to Christ. Humankind is never the victim of God. God is always the victim of humankind. So think of the word victim. Okay, you go to Mass, you hear the word victim used again and again. Well, well, victim is kind of the linchpin of Gerard's argument. He's drawing attention to the victim, what's going on with the victim. The victim is another word for a scapegoat. So that's kind of his technical term. But another way of just saying, well, scapegoat is just a way of talking about why we have victims. And you have victims, but then that means you have victimizers. So if you see the centrality of victim, you see that's kind of, he's saying, that's what he calls in his theory, uh, sacred violence. But then his slam dunk is, yeah, that, well, God is always the victim of humankind, that Christ became the victim, sacrifice for us. So Gerard finally says about his theory. He says, ah, "I thought as an anthropologist discovered something. I didn't discover a darn thing. This is just what's in the Bible. That all, all along I knew this. This is what any good Catholic Christian knows in their upbringing and when they attend to the liturgy, et cetera. This is what it's all about. I just now saw it in literature and see it anthropologically. All these things are just unpacking what's implicitly taught and explicitly taught in the Christian liturgy and scriptures by looking at murder victim." all all that stuff you and then god finally allowing himself to be
1: the victim yeah so gerard's kind of this funny character in that he was raised irreligious right and then through his study of like 19th century novels uh kind of developed this theory of the scapegoat and mimesis and then eventually realized like he's i've constructed this kind of interesting exposition of just normal christianity right
0: mm-hmm. right yeah yeah and so in that sense he's he's not writing the key to all mythologies like kasaban from middlemarch because he sounds like a frenchman that just has you a little hobby horse but if it was that then yeah these are a dime a dozen but if you see that no he's just the guy that in this real strange language is shown the centrality of the gospel message that's been there all along then you don't have to view him as just some crackpot French anthropologist. <laughs> <laughs> and, and yet he does bring out the gospel in a way that's usually overlooked because he also brings out, he brings out how Shakespeare made the same discovery. He basically says Shakespeare had to come to know his own Christian faith fully. And he does that in the winner's tale, but he also makes the same argument Dostoevsky and in, uh, Grand Inquisitor, no, not Grand Inquisitor, uh, Brothers Karamazov. He says he was always pushing against the same thing, but he didn't quite have the breakthrough. And then finally, he had the breakthrough in Brother Karamazov, the breakthrough was just see the the logic of the gospel in all its fullness. And that that's when these authors, novelists, solved their mimetic problems. They were writing, in one sense, to be redeemed from their mimetic problems. And the Gerard says, I'm kind of the same guy. I'm a mimetic guy, and I'm hyper-obsessed with this stuff, but I need to be cured from it. And the only cure has been there all along. It's, it's been the Christian gospel. He just has to connect the dots for himself.
1: And so you've alluded... A little bit to some of the shortcomings in Girard, I was wondering if you would talk a little bit about kind of where Girard needs to be filled out or updated um, and maybe how that ties into some of the stuff you've been working on.
0: Well, it's kind of implicit in why I've been focusing in on on Oedipus, because Girard kind of bats away Oedipus. Oh, yeah, this is just another obfuscating story because we tend to view Oedipus as guilty and we're innocent. But I, I think he, he gives it short shrift. So I take seriously, in Oedipus, the the course at one point says, oh, Oedipus, Oedipus, you are my paradigm, my pattern for all humanity. Because what does humanity have of happiness but the seeming and then the falling away? So Oedipus is the pattern for all humanity. Well, lo and behold, uh, uh, Plato makes the same argument in The Republic. When he gives his account of the tyrannic soul, he describes Oedipus. Uh, in book five, this is the political problem, Oedipedal problem. And so, Plato and Sophocles see that Oedipus somehow is paradigmatic of humanity. Well, I think then uh, you could see in the gospel when it kind of has the opposite of the Oedipedal story of a Jesus who, doesn't, who obeys his father and doesn't sleep with his mother but loves her and shares her with the world, then you, have, uh, you see that what's, what's Gerard missing? Oedipus is a pattern because it's our nature. And if you corrupt nature, corruption follows a pattern. But if you cure nature and then go beyond nature, it has a pattern, too, as you see in the Gospels. But nature is the source of the similarity. And so that's why Plato can see it. So Plato can discover what Gerard sees and what the Gospel sees just in his account of the needing to harm enemies. The fact that every, our notion of justice means we've got to benefit friends, but then we've got to harm enemies. He knows that's fundamentally unjust relative to nature because according to nature, justice would be to benefit friends and enemies. You'd never make that distinction. So, Plato's discovered the same thing. You can't have enemies. If you have enemies, then fundamentally, you're not connected to justice. You're not connected to the good. So, he's discovered just by knowing nature. So, I think it's knowable, this thing in nature. That's why the philosophers can discover that on their own. Uh, And that's why uh, Gerard should tap in his account to nature, rather than saying it's anthropology, should tie it in with uh, classical philosophy. And that would add to his argument on from subtract
1: Right, That's great. Well, I just want to end by talking about just the end of the book, where Girard turns to the kind of contemporary world and Nietzsche to talk about our modern concern for victims, which... I mean, just day by day feels more relevant and apropos as uh, we get just massive social and political clashes over victimhood and who the real victim is. And so how does how does Girard bring that out? And what's the kind of Nietzschean response? And how does Girard respond to Nietzsche?
0: Yeah, well, that's it's a weird sort of optical illusion, Because in one sense, the world has become, as George says, more Christian than it's ever been. Because it's always said, oh, those victims are innocent. They're innocent. They're innocent. They don't deserve to be victimized. Okay. And so he'd say, yeah, well, that's true. That's how pervasive the Christian gospel has been. That That's the one thing everybody will agree upon. Nobody will ever say, yeah, we have to victimize somebody in order to have this good thing. But then...
1: Yeah, no one's making the argument, in other words, that Caiaphas makes. That it is expedient that one man shall die for the benefit of everyone, it's like no, nobody's saying that. No, people
0: can't say Caiaphas anymore. Right, exactly. So no one's yeah. doing that. Yeah,
1: we're all so, right. If yeah. if we yeah. ever have to do anything bad to anybody, it's because they're guilty. They really deserved it, um you know. And and this doesn't help us. It's just it's it's not for the benefit of anybody. Where no one's making the kind of cynical Caiaphas argument anymore.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody's going to buy that. So that sounds like an improvement. So this is kind of like the the, right. the the Christian thing has been. Being on the side of the victim. Okay, the, the victims are innocent. Right. But the, the thing that Nietzsche also saw is that, in one says Christianity's triumph, but this has also been the death of God. Okay, so what do you see now? The triumph of this Christian idea of the victim innocent is the one now guilty victim is Christianity. It's standing in the way somehow deep down, it's, it's on the side of victimizers. So Christianity is kind of this obstacle getting in the way of bringing out the innocent of victims. So the West, Christianity, whatever, somehow is the source of the problem. Mm-hmm. So it's still kind of the victim that one needs to take off against, because it's like, you know, so you have to include everybody, except you can't include those exclusive people, Christians. Or Rousseau would say that the civil religion, you must now tolerate everybody, but you cannot tolerate intolerance. Or closer to home, those haters are, we got to get rid of all the haters, so we got to hate the haters, So, you have this last little move that turns in upon itself, and it has that final victim. The final victim is the one that exposed the lie about victims, and that would be Christ himself. Mm -hmm. So, that's this kind of last throw of Satan as he finally accuses Christ himself, Antichrist. And by accusing Christ of being the one who's the victimizer, he takes him away from being the ultimate victim of God. So, this is the way you kind of undermine that. So, you both kind of have the power of the revelation. But then you occlude it at the, at the key element. You won't let God do the reveal, and you want to reveal it on your own as though you could see it all. But to do that, you have to, again, occlude it and lie about the source of this. You can't, you can't say, no, I got this from Christ. You pretend you got this from yourself. So Christ has to be excluded. No, he's not the guy that told me this. No, no,
1: no, not him. <laughs> Jonathan, any final thoughts or questions for Patrick while we've got him here?
2: Uh, not at the, uh, nothing comes to mind. This was this really, Oh, I did. Yes. I did have a question. So you've, um, I'm just really interested in hearing. So you've heard Gerard lecture, right? The man himself.
0: Uh, not lecture, just at a small study group in a seminar room. Even better. Like with, uh, with Peter Teal and, uh, some of the famous Gerardians, I didn't know who they were at the time. I just kind of, Teal asked, I met him through some other person. He said, why don't you come over to this group? get together Gerard uh and talk about things and so I just heard Gerard talk to the groups there and got to talk to them a bit afterwards uh so I'm sure all the Gerardian luminaries were in the room. the only one I knew was teal at the time, and so I went to about three sessions of that learned a lot
2: yeah and how uh, I'm just curious how he just presented his um his thoughts or how he engaged in conversation what was his his mode of of operating in those contexts,
0: well, just uh, as genial and as smooth as you could be, he just talked about whatever, and his mind would just kind of respond to questions and link things together, and you just follow it, and you go, "Wow, that's a mind at at work doing this." And then somebody else would ask a question and do the same sort of thing. It was so it wasn't a lecture; it was just an incredible conversation where you just saw how everything was connected in his mind, uh, and you just had to kind of. Ask a good question, you see the connections. And so he was there, he's talking quite a bit about Nietzsche. So he'd go into the details about Nietzsche and his relation to Cosimo, uh, Wagner. And so he had all the details. It's like the guy never forgot anything. He had a lucid, incredible memory for all these details, but he knew how to bring those details out whenever needed in the conversation. It was a tour de force without it being bombastic or loud. It was very, very subtle and quiet and, and powerful.
1: Right. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, why do you think? I mean, bringing up Peter Thiel and Girard and kind of this Bay Area tech world, why is Girard kind of having a moment? Is it just kind of because Peter Thiel is powerful and rich and he likes Girard? But it, it's seeing, and so it's just kind of mimetic. Everyone's picking up on <laughs> on him, or, or or is there something else going on? Why is Girard kind of uh, more popular than your average French theorist?
0: Yeah. Well, two two things. One is uh, it's like the only way that people can encounter the power of the gospel if you're really uh, smart, you know, egghead, nerdy type in Silicon Valley. This is the way you're suddenly going to discover the gospel in a way you had no idea how powerful it was. Hmm. So this is probably the only evangelical power, so to speak, voice in the, hmm. in the Silicon Valley world would be Gerard. The theory can do that. But then coupled with that, and, and Teal is the first guy affected by that. I think Teal, he had a Christian background, so he recognized that. But for him, this is kind of like the voice of the gospel in Teal's mind and a lot of other people, like that guy you mentioned that wrote Wanting Sturgis or something like that. He's a Silicon Valley entrepreneur, but he's basically, you can see him basically being converted under the influence of Gerard. Right. But the other thing is just the, the reason it's the moment is that all the pathologies that we're encountering whether it be, you know, the scapegoating of those exclusive people, those non-equity people, or the non-diverse people. And then reinforced by the polarization where each one becomes a mimetic rival of one another on right and left. And all the technology enhances that, which is all mimesis because everything is a meme. Everybody's imitated somehow those two come together this is what's going on i'm not sure what this is but right. somehow that this is more explained by gerard than anybody else
1: mm-hmm.
0: something strange going on and he seemed to be at the heart of it
1: great well thanks so much for joining us this was really great really enjoyed it yeah
0: yeah well my pleasure that's great
1: thanks everybody for listening uh this is the new humanists and i hope you enjoyed hope you share this and like subscribe give us a Give us a five star review on Apple Podcasts and we will talk to you next time.